welcome to Elixir Talk, the podcast where we answer your questions about Elixir application design and the state of the ecosystem and some other stuff. My name is Desmond Bowie, and I'm here with Chris Bell. Yo, yo, yo. What's up, Desmond? Yo, yo, yo. I don't know why I did that. No, it's fun. Yeah. Um, how's, how's your week? Uh, well, my week's just started. It's off to a pretty good start. The surfing has been dope here, man. Yeah. The water is so warm this time of year. That's a very Californian comment. What? <laughs> Surfing is so dope? Yeah. Uh, well, there's really no other word for it. Nice. Have you been uh, doing some coding or have you been mostly doing managing? A little bit of both. Actually, I've, in addition to managing and sometimes writing code, I am now a product manager as well because that's how we roll at startups we um we go with the pod system at work i don't know if if you all do this sort of thing but we have these cross-functional pods and we've just spun up a pod a new pod called the systems pod which is really like just a back-end kind of focused on our infrastructure focused on scaling focused also on like developer experience building out tests understanding like how are we designing the system how does this work so there's no user-facing part of it but our platform and its scalability and reliability and availability are like key parts of our business proposition. So I thought it made sense to make this a first-class product. And I mean, I'm sort of stretching the use of the word product, but I think it matters here uh, to focus on this and give it that attention it deserves. So I'm leading this. I mean, I'm writing some code, but we're thinking about, um, yeah, how we want to deploy, how this looks going forward. And I'm sort of in the position to lead that. Honestly, that sounds like a really smart move, given that like your business depends on you. Well, most businesses depend on some kind of tech at this point and all the businesses we work on. But given that like reliability and uptime are so important to what you're doing, and it sounds like that's a that's a wise investment. I, I think like otherwise as well, like something that ends up happening is you constantly talk about trying to prioritize this stuff, but inevitably something else is always more important. That's precisely what it was, is a lot of this, what are commonly considered chores, were just like mixed in with other things, and nothing was, it's not that nothing was getting done, but as you said, it wasn't getting the attention it deserved. Yeah, and I think like, there's like keep the lights on kind of stuff, where you know, you need to keep continuous improving and making sure that you are, you have the coverage you need, you're investing wisely in your infrastructure and things like that. And then there's just general kind of tasks that you need to be doing as well to like help bolster what you're doing and make sure that you're, you know, kind of guarding um, and making sure you're defending yourself for the future. And and like, yeah, I I think it sounds really smart to prioritize it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, as I've mentioned on the podcast before, we have very interesting scaling challenges where we bring on a new game and that's tens of thousands of people that just like jump on all at once. So we really have to be ready for that and anticipate it and be able to convince our partners that we're a stable, stable partner to join up with. So what are some of the first things you're doing in terms of uh, like, what are you prioritizing? Well, the first thing, there's a couple of minor things, but the, f- the first real thing is we are moving off of Kubernetes and list- longtime listeners of the podcast maybe not even long-time listeners, but people who have heard an episode before have probably heard me rail about this. And I think there's a time and a place for that technology. In our stack, it's mostly caused us pain. And Mm. it, yeah, it hasn't worked for us. It's mostly worked against us. So we're moving towards 
more of a um not self-hosted but we're just gonna like deploy straight to uh cloud instances and manage all of it ourselves and eventually and i want to get your feedback on this because right now we have the single server which is great it's big box like it chews through our uh traffic with no problem but eventually we want to move to some sort of cluster where we have some failover capacity so i was thinking about how erlang has traditionally been deployed which is steel cases somewhere in the field and inside those cases are two computers two nodes running a cluster and then their app is running across it so that if one of the computers goes down then it just the app spins over to the other node on the cluster and data is replicated i think using amnesia across it so then they have this immediate failover redundancy but but before we go into that can you talk a bit more about your kube kubernetes journey and kind of highlight some of the reasons why you feel like you're moving away from it and that's the right move for you guys. Originally, we adopted Kubernetes under a different infrastructure. We were a rail shop at the time, and a lot of this predates me coming on as a contractor to build out the Elixir system. So I think Kubernetes made sense in a world where we had multiple Ruby apps talking to each other. We needed to scale them up. Uh, We didn't want to have to think about that and we wanted the system to deal with it for us and deal with the apps talking to each other for us and and all of that. I think with the move to Elixir, a lot of those benefits became much less pronounced. And at the same time, our developer who was working on all this got burned out doing a lot of DevOps and ended up leaving the company. So there was a big hole in our understanding of the system as well. And so learning how everything fit together and then trying to trying to make simple changes, like adding a Datadog agent took forever. Uh, it literally took about six weeks um, to work on. First, we used this Helm chart that they provide, but that didn't work quite right. And then we had 30 instances of this agent running, which was a huge bill, even though we only really needed one sidecar. And then it couldn't talk to Datadog or we were having trouble talking to the agent and um, one of our agents kept crashing like a bunch of these pods that the agent was running on kept crashing but we couldn't tell why and sshing onto the pod was did not give us a lot of um, visibility what was going on and i don't know if we were sshing onto the wrong pod frankly it's hard to know like a lot of this it was just so much of that infrastructure was obtuse and I think not meant to be twiddled with directly. And I don't know. I don't want to say I'm old school or anything, but I like to have my hands on this stuff. And we didn't have a DevOps person that we could turn to and be like, hey, what's the answer? And then they would do the incantation. So being able to make changes like that was painful. Not having a lot of visibility into the infrastructure was painful. And not having uh, a clear path to hot upgrades, being able to connect directly to the running instance with a remote terminal or run the observer. Uh, That was painful. And for all that pain, again, we didn't get anything out of it. We weren't doing a lot of interesting scaling uh, with spinning out our pods. And particularly as we store state in memory, uh, that's not how Kubernetes expects you to roll. Right. They they do have a notion of a stateful service though, right? I think so. Yeah. I remember looking into that at some point in the past, but um, okay. So that's your that's kind of your motivations there, right? Like, so what are you hoping to get out of your move now to 
uh, clearly it's simplicity, right? Like you're looking to kind of go away from the system that's doing all this stuff for you into something a bit more bare metal. Yes, and that's a good question. What are we looking to get out of this? I think more hands-on control. I I want that... I want to be able to touch the server. Um, and it's it's beyond just kind of that visceral reaction. Yeah, but what's driving that? Like, do you do you actually find that you need to, to live debug your instance? No. But there have been times when we don't have visibility into what's going wrong. And the logging hasn't been helpful and the instrumentation hasn't been great. And then when something is wonky with your infrastructure, it's really difficult to troubleshoot it. Yeah. Can you, uh, what's been some of those examples in the past for you recently? Of things that we've had trouble. Yeah, debugging and profiling. Hmm, Let me think, let me think. Clearly the Datadog one sounds like a thing. That was a big thing. Yeah. Um... The way we connect to Postgres is a little funny. We have this PG Bouncer set up in between our apps. And again, a lot of a lot of this infrastructure makes sense when you think about a constellation of several applications all working together. Right. You deploy at once. Um, we've moved away from that. We've combined our many Ruby apps into a single Elixir app. We had separate instance of Nginx serving our front-end apps. Those are now being served by our Umbrella apps. So we really just have this one artifact. And so why do you need this containerized like platform provider when you just have one app that you're deploying? Right. But to me, it sounds like some of your biggest scaling challenges are the fact that you have a single node. Like a single node can only ever take you so far, right? Like you could have the biggest box in the world, but that box might go down and you have no failover right now. That's true. So we're thinking about this in two parts. There's the the fail, failure of the one node, which I think we can address with this clustering, which I still want to hear your thoughts about. <laughs> and then I think uh, the other way is to, you can scale out horizontally in the sense of like setting up other clusters and we can route to those uh, with DNS. Like we control the SDKs that our game partners use. We can right. point to different places because, right. you know, conceivably there could be legal requirements around who's eligible to win stuff, and we need to keep someone's data in Europe. We need to keep someone's data here. Oh, these clients like don't want to don't want to have multi-tenancy. And I think it's easy enough to sh- it's easier to shard data that way. And no, um, these clusters are taking lots of load. This is sort of a thing that handles a bunch of smaller games. This is one big game, so we're going to get a big box. Mm. Uh, and then we can scale that up and down based on traffic. Because again, like a game, you know, it'll be big for a while and then it tapers off. Mm. So these are ideas I'm playing around with. None of this has been set in stone, but that's how I, I think about kind of clustering out and working with keeping the stuff in memory. There's also an argument to be said with don't keep anything in memory. Right. I mean, yeah, I, I wonder if that's like a worth some exploration, you know? And I think like we've obviously talked about this before on the show where there's a trade-off of like going down the road that you've gone down where you're saying that you have these incredibly stateful services and now you're you're kind of at that point where you're butting heads with the the, these uh kind of the details of the implementation right like scaling this thing to multi-node inherently means that you have to have a way to distribute the state and 
our natural inclination into the state distribution has often been a, set, a centralized database, right? Like, um, and you know what? For ninety nine percent of the people out there, it's probably fine as well. And then I wonder, like, my challenge then to you would be like, is that actually okay for your business? But I mean, you know your business better, better than I do. But yeah, and I mean, we're ex- we're exploring these trade offs now and asking yeah. questions about how expensive is downtime, how valuable. Our hot upgrades. Uh, what is the cost of? I mean, what if we just got a really high throughput database? You know, funneled everything to Cassandra, called it a day. Right. So uh, clearly, like read latency is really important, right? That 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 sounds like that's why you've gone for the in-memory kind of model anyway. Yeah. But then I wonder, like, actually, could you? Could you be okay with some kind of intermediary cache layer as well, like on each node or something like that? You know, like have a, um, you could have like an X based caching layer and then a DB behind the scenes or something. Well, but if we were clustering, we couldn't use Ets. Cause... Well, well you, you could still get, I, I mean, it depends on how you route the traffic, but if you had like sticky load balancers directing traffic to each. Uh, each node then you you might still get like quite a lot of cash hits out of that you know but again if a node goes down then you lose the cash yeah but then you've always got the db and maybe the db is good enough in your case to actually like either hydrate a session or give you that kind of read performance that you're looking for but contrast that with if we're storing our data in like an amnesia database mm. in the cluster then we get that failover. It acts as the cache. And mm. if we need to s- share data across clusters, like user accounts or something, mm-hmm. then maybe that's backed by a single Postgres instance. Right, and you, you replicate through Amnesia or something like that? Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, a challenge is if we if we use these things as caching layers and then we turn on the app, then that's a thundering herd of data that has to get pulled from the database. And right. like, yeah, busting yep. those caches can be very expensive. But you definitely have that problem now as well, right? Like if a node goes down, you spin something else back up, you have to rehydrate that state anyway. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, that's a situation we face now. It's not but we have to think about like what happens when But I, I feel like you're in a good situation there because you control the SDKs, so therefore like you can bake some kind of exponential back off and retry system back based into your client as well into into the SDK libraries and like that actually might be a good way for you guys to to think about mitigating some of these issues yeah that's a good idea it's a good idea i mean since we do control that stuff why not push it out from the server yeah i i think you're in a like in a good position there like when it's a public api you're in a completely different like zone you know you you basically you're at everyone else's mercy whereas i think in this case like you control all of that so therefore you can like stipulate the rules in which retries happen and maybe that is maybe you move to a place where you do have different clusters and they retry against each cluster and then that's how you do placement but to me like honestly it it feels like you should be doing that via load balancing or something instead because ultimately, I think what you're going to end up doing otherwise is like, uh, you're still, like, even if you had different clusters for different regions, there's no guarantee that you're, you're always going to butt heads with like a single machine, right? Like, you're, you're eventually going to need to distribute state. Mm-hmm. I, I just can't see you not 
needing to do that because there's finite limits to a single machine. You don't have failover. You're basically in a position where you're, that node can go down and you're completely screwed. Well, but no, wait. If a node goes down, then it fails over to the other node in the cluster. And then that node has to deal with that. Maybe it's already dealing with like a shit ton of load already because you're, you know, you're, you're, if you do that, you're basically going to have to implement like a client side load balancing, which like you, things that are really good at load balancing are load balancers. Uh, it's not. No, it's not that the uh, client would load balance. It's that if I have a cluster and the business app is running on one of the nodes, it can only run on one node at a time. Oh, okay, so you're saying if that node goes, you'd have a failover node. Yeah, I mean, which basically means we're running right. tw- at twice the capacity. But, like, my point is, is that, so, if you want to do that, you're vertically scaling, right? Like, you have to continuously add capacity on that machine in order to keep, like, meeting the requirements of larger demand. Like, more and more demand. And, like, I know, like, memory is really cheap these days, and all of those, <laughs> maybe actually that's a good point. But I, I still feel like there's a finite limit in which you will eventually hit. But maybe maybe that's okay for the time being. Maybe you just say, like, you know what? We're going to throw the biggest possible machine at this problem and see how far we get and then deal with it later and just do this failover approach and then push the problem down to the client to have an exponential back off. Conceivably, like, the client could store a bunch of events and then only notify us of, like, the last thing that happens. Like right now, we get pinged throughout sort of the life cycle of players doing stuff. Right. Um, but yeah, conceivably, it's just like it all sits on the client, and then we get the one thing at the end, and that would drastically reduce our traffic. Mm-hmm. So, and then you can kind of control that thundering herd of connecting back up as well. Yeah. That's <sighs> yeah. Idea. Yeah. I. I. I mean, you still got to deal with the failover, and like a machine goes down. How do you figure out that that machine's gone down, and you need to switch over to the the failover, right? You well, still got that problem. The Erlang cluster handles that for us. Okay, so you would do it like that, and then. Yeah, just say like this app runs on this node, and then it fails over to that node, and so we rely on the Erlang VM to like deal with it for us. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we would want to be notified if one of the nodes went down, so that we could. Like, if it didn't spin up on its own automatically, if there was something weird with the network that we could investigate. Right. But then meanwhile, yeah, the system keeps going. It's definitely... I mean, it sounds like you'll probably get pretty far with something like that. Um, I I tend to feel like you're still hedging your bets on a single, like, EC2 instance, which could, which could still go away. So you don't have that much redundancy there, right? Or are you talking about having, or whatever instance you use, some kind of actual physical compute? Well, but again, it's it's two instances. Okay, so is that how you'd actually do it? Well, that's if, yeah, if you have a cluster of two nodes, that's two machines. Okay, and then you would, you would do, like, more, like, cattle kind of idea, have IP addresses for each one of those and connect them. Uh, I'm not sure. Okay. I mean, they so, would have to know about each other. Yeah, that's certainly. Um, and then the load balancer or whatever is addressing it from the SDKs would have to know like which cluster to talk to. So it needs some sort of stable IP address. Right. Um, but yeah, like whether those machines come up or go down. And again, like it gets into, well, do we want to think about hot upgrades? Because that's more treating the servers as pets. Mm. Um, Sorry, pets, like, not cattle. That's what, that's what yeah. you meant to say? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I mean, our friend Pete Gamash. What's up, Pete? 
he's gone back and forth on this, or he started off with treating his servers as pets at when he gave that original, that talk at the original impacts about how he yeah. deployed. And then he's since gone to treating them as cattle. Uh, but again, like your mileage may vary. Our mileage may vary. So I think the one nice thing is we can sort of anticipate the traffic we're going to get, even though it's going to be a big spike. And, um, And, I mean, another thing that, like, this system spot is going to work on is load testing. I mean, right now we have a big box, and it's totally fine. Um, but we don't know what the system can do. Like, and if we throw 128 cores at it, like, maybe it's totally fine. But the other problem is, like, so you, is it HTTP? It's not HTTP requests, is it? I can't ever remember. Uh, yeah, it is. So there's still some finite number of connections you can hold open. So you still have some like theoretical load limit of like that what you can actually deal with concurrently. Mm, that's true. So like I, I think like my point still stands in that I think you're going to need whenever it is, it might be sooner than you think, some ability to to scale this past one physical machine running it at one point in time. Mm. And, like, what you're doing right now might be just delaying the inevitable of, like, figuring out how you deal with distributed state. And, like, maybe that's a good way to, to invest the, the, the resources that you have, given that you've spun up this pod. Maybe it's worth, like, a two-week, like, investigation into, like, how could we distribute it? And are there better ways to solve this problem? Yeah, and something we should brush up on is that a uh, road to 2 million WebSocket connections on a single machine. Right, but and but that's WebSockets, right? And not, not HTTP connections. Uh, that's true. I mean, maybe an answer is WebSockets in the future. Right, potentially, potentially. Or maybe, like, and I also think about, like, when you bring other engineers onto this team, like, you, like there is something to be said of, like, horizontally scalable stacks, like, being very easy to get. I know it's like, I mean, we've talked about this, like, ad nauseum, I guess, but, like, dealing with the, like, the stateful versus stateless service problem. And like, and I feel like this is the thing that we constantly butt heads with. It's like, like what you're doing right now, like moving away from Kube is like basically going against the grain of, of, of the crowd, right? Like most people would be like, well, even us at Frame, we're thinking about moving to Kubernetes because we're suddenly in this position where we want to start clustering some of our services together. And actually Kubernetes has a pretty good path to doing that for us. Um, so I think about like if you're ramping up other engineers like is it easier to grok kind of this idea of horizontally scalable services is that going to be better for the business in the long run where you know you don't have to run such big instances you can run smaller instances and have more of them I don't know they're, they're like very interesting avenues to explore and I think it'd be really interesting to hear if you guys do do that and like what what the results might be yeah, I mean, we interviewed this DevOps candidate the other day. He didn't even want to hear about stateful services. Yeah, I bet. He's probably had... like I know there's people in the past who've like shunned away from that, like in the C-sharp like Java realm where... like I think it was um, the British Airways website used to be every single connection to the site and every single checkout experience used to be a stateful service. So 
Um, and then like your checkout might just go away at any point and that would just kick you back to the beginning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I remember hearing horror stories of people working on a system like that. So and I'm sure there's been like DevOps people who've had those kind of horror stories, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I understand there's a reason why we've moved towards the world we're in. At the same time, like, a lot of that reason is because stateful stuff in Rails is impossible. Yeah, and I, I think it's broader than Rails, though, right? It's, it's any kind of language where we we have a typical kind of two-tier or three-tier system of app server, um, web server, and then DB. Mm -hmm. Like It's very easy to scale those horizontally to deal with more traffic, um, whether that be in Node, in Go, in Rust, in, in Rails, in like whatever it might be, you know. I don't know. It's uh I think like you'll have to you'll have to keep talking to us about this this journey you're on and then give a talk about it. Yeah, it's super interesting and again we're still in the in the research phase of this and these are just right. ideas I've been batting around. Yeah, I yeah, I, I, I hear you on that. I think like it's clearly something that you have to give some thought to and it's gonna impact the, the future direction of this company as well, right? Like the these decisions, however you know whatever you decide here is going to at least be there for a, at least a year right like so you have to you're going to have to pay some tax or whatever decision you make either way mm -hmm. um it's all about making the right call yeah and i think it's also interesting for the community because we talk about these in-memory solutions and we talk about oh well you have these processes and you keep stuff there and if we have an an application that tries to use it and then immediately just runs into ceilings. Right. Then it's like, well, we can't recommend any of these cool things. I mean, you do have a path to distributing your state. Like you could have a process registry, you connect your nodes together, you have some kind of registry that keeps track of where a user is and what node that's distributed across. Um, and you have some failover where, you know, you're sharing that application state if one node goes down. And you have some routing mechanism to say user A is located on node C or whatever it might be, right? Which is what your registry does. So uh, I don't know. But then like th that might be ultimately more complex and harder to work with than just using something that centralizes the state. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean... But it might be the right choice if if... The, if you need that really low latency fast kind of read yeah I mean there's an argument for just like just put it in Redis yeah honestly yeah I I don't know it sounds like something that you should talk to the team about as well I would say like I would love to like understand if there's anyone else out there who has had good successes of doing a, a pattern like, like, like I just described or something similar you know mm-hmm I don't feel like it's a thing that we hear that much at talks. Well, I think it's because a lot of people haven't tried that right. with this platform. I mean, not only is like the language new, but big adopters like at Frame. I mean, you guys, you have like a very traditional setup. Totally, yeah. So we're kind of going out on a limb here, right? And but like, I will say one thing though. Like our setup, like. It's very traditional, but it causes me very few problems. <laughs> but I don't know the, what the other side's like to, to comment on it, but uh, and I think there's something to be said for choosing 
proven solutions when your business is not necessarily in the market of like great success yet and not necessarily might has the market fit to to deem like experimentation around like different approaches to be like that useful well and also talking about uh proven solutions i don't want to get woken up at three in the morning either no right of course of course and yeah totally get that so, but, you know, I'm, I don't know. I'm kind of the adventurous type. And... <laughs> I appreciate that about you. Yeah, well, someone's, if I wanted something boring, I would work at a larger company. So, I mean, so you have the stateful service. Like, how are you dealing with something like tests right now in that stateful service? So that's a great question. And it's kind of difficult because it's challenging to inject like to set the whole system up to have the state that you want. Like you can't yeah. just insert a record in the database because your processes that hold on to that don't know about it or they're not triggered into that life cycle. So we had we wrote some tests for a while that would just blow away parts of the supervision tree and restart them and then when they rehydrate when they restart they rehydrate themselves from the data in the database. Uh, that's super clunky. So what we're moving towards now is a lot of like black box testing, just very like hit the system from the outside, set up all the conditions through API calls, which is nice because then it gives us, you know, full end to end testing. And ultimately that's what matters. And then, I mean, we write some unit tests for pure functions. Mm. Uh, but you're opting to not test on like the process by process level, but more like integration tests from the from the outside yeah, those are the primary tests. And then okay. if we have a, a stateful process, I mean, there's still functions that don't modify the state. You know, they take it and then do something else. So we could test those directly without mm. setting up the whole process. Right, right, right. But then, right. So, I think this makes sense. Like, So you have that notion of like, I've uh, you've got that kind of outside through the stack coverage. In the testing triangle, you're kind of dealing with the stuff right at the top, and then mm -hmm. you're unit testing some things as well, but you're kind of shying away from too many stateful process tests, it sounds like. Yeah, because ultimately what matters is when I hit the server and I'm trying to do something, given that... Work? Yeah, like, did it, did I, did it work? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, and then the beauty is, like, because they're functions elsewhere, you can just unit test those functions, right? Yeah, precisely. And so yeah. I think that that's looking like a pretty good solution where yeah the pure functions are easy to unit test the system as a whole we test as a black box which gives us additional uh security and then a mix of type specs also helps catch other things that we may not have noticed mm. uh, no it sounds good have you did you consider like having a mock process to keep all of the kind of state in or something that you in instead of like um whatever gen servers you usually use like spin them up a different a kind of different process that acts as a, like a fixture provider or something so nice try but um that turns out to be pretty difficult i mean we did do we did do a fair amount of mocking of just like random function calls yeah but i don't yeah i don't like mocking i mean it's one thing to set up like a mock for an external data source where you can swap in an implementation uh, that I think we've talked about. That's cool. But just like if I have an authentication service in memory that looks for, this is an admin user that I know about, stubbing out that call works. And it's what we've done from time to time. 
but I don't like summing out function calls because your implementation may change or something else. And then you're littering your test with just like ignore this, ignore that, and ignore the other thing. And I, I think you start to lose confidence in your tests. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I hear you on that. I think like the second you have those kind of mock providers, you're never really testing the real implementation. So unless you've got tests for that implementation separately, um, it can be difficult to actually have faith in everything working. Yeah, I mean, you get some error and because I've seen this happen time and again, the test doesn't work and the developer is like, I'll just add another mock. And like, maybe that's an important error. Right, and then, well, the test passed, but everything breaks in production, right? So, yeah. Yeah, it's it can definitely be a thing. I I understand that. I think there's like a time and a place for like dependency injection and and, and kind of like mocking out those separate uh, external services. I think it's a is a good candidate, as you said. So yeah, having dependency injection is also a very useful tool and just a good way to like think about designing your application. So do you end up like in this outside kind of through the stack test? Uh, I guess you might call it an integration test. Um, do you end up having something that end, like sets up all the state in these processes anyway, or does it use like the API to set up that state? It uses the API. Oh, cool. So you end up like actually fully testing the create methods and everything to, to get the state in the right place, and then you test. Yeah, I mean, we have to bootstrap like the initial user, the initial admin yeah. user. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But then there we have helpers for like, Oh, the admin user is creating like the general conditions for a game to work, and then then there's API tests for like, oh, let's create a user, let's like start to play the game. Right. So you really are doing like true kind of end-to-end tests in through the stack. Yeah, and then I mean, there's a counterpoint of well, then you're hitting the database constantly. Like that's a recipe for slow tests. Mm. And yeah, okay. But like, whatever, man. <laughs> but they're not slow. That's the thing. Like, I so we have like thousands of tests that hit the DB, and I have I've never thought, wow, these are slow. Really? How long does your test we take? Twenty seconds. Really? Yeah. Damn, man. I'm gonna look at the uh, test run right now and comment on how many tests there are and how long it's taken because I haven't looked at it in a while. Well, and also, I mean, when I think about having a bunch of tests, like that usually reflects not only other integration tests, but there's also unit tests that hit the database and they test, oh, if I call this method, then I created this object. And so if you get rid of that whole class of thing and instead focus on doing pure functional testing, uh, that's a lot faster for sure. So we we have over 2,000 tests and our biggest test suite, which continuously hits the database uh, takes 23 seconds and in total our full test run across all of our seven apps takes 59 seconds on ci and that's over 2000 tests wow yeah that seems fast why are your tests usually slow <laughs> you mean why are your tests slow <laughs> why are my tests slow so like what are you doing to set up the http layer you're not like fully going through an http request are you are you doing like the phoenix way of kind of mocking function calls to make HTTP requests. Um, I th- We just call controllers. Hmm. Oh, okay. You just call the controller action to do it. Yeah, like we have an interesting setup where we use a JSON RPC. Yeah. Instead of like rest routes. So we just have a single endpoint 
Um, and then that dispatches to different function calls based on the method string that we pass in. Mm-hmm. So how long do your how long do they take right now? Well, we're still building them out, oh, okay. so I don't want to <laughs> talk about that right now. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, yeah, I would say I've never I've never seen a problem, and I've never felt like oh, this is really slow. It's always been ever since we started on this approach. And we, we literally use X Machina for every single test. Mm-hmm. Um, everything that hits the DB actually inserts a record and then we just roll everything back. So, um, and obviously that's like a local Postgres instance on the on, on the CI box, but I don't know. It's just have never had problems. Mm. And I, I really like the approach and I like X Machina. I think it's a good library. Um, What's X Machina, Chris? Uh, so X Machina is akin to Factory Bot, or, fa- or you might know it as uh, what is it called? That factory, it used to factory be called, Girl. Yeah, it used to be called Factory Girl, and they renamed it, which I think was a good move. Uh, so it's a, it's effectively a kind of fixture library, although n- not really. It's more of a factory in that you insert records into your database, but you have easy ways to kind of create those records. Um, so in X Machina, you end up with a factory where you can create um, instance. So you can insert like records into your DB, uh, your Ecto schemas, basically, and then read them back out. It's very, very straightforward. And cool. you can do relationships as well there. So, um, yeah, all of our tests, basically, they don't really rely on any global states. So we don't have anything to set up. So every single test is... Um, uh, every single test is kind of independent in the state that it inserts and then we just roll back the DB after every bit so Ecto has all of this kind of sorted for you and it, it makes for very t- fast tests which is really nice so yeah that's awesome yeah um, yeah I'd definitely look at X Machina if, if you haven't looked at it before um, they do a good job and would highly recommend it yeah, super useful. I mean, I'm sure any of you who have been working on web apps for a while are familiar with these factory testing libraries. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure people are, definitely. Definitely. I, I would say, like, the only thing that these things do, like, you end up not really testing all of the cases and all the possible states that your um, your schemas and your models might need to be in, you know? Because invariably you insert with, like, the most minimal set of data, Um and unless you're very judicious in your tests, you like end up with a lot of cases that haven't necessarily been tested, which might be <laughs> some place for like property testing or something like that with different variants on a model or something. I have, don't know. Have you done any property-based testing? Nope. And I'm kind of speaking out my ass in the fact that I know how it works. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh shit, I just gave the game away. <laughs> I mean, I think I like. I think I understand how it works, Andrea. Um, gave a tutorial on it. Andrea and, and Eric actually gave tutorial a tutorial on it at the MPEX in LA earlier this year, uh, mm-hmm. which I couldn't attend because I was running the beginner training. But, you know, they've been talking about it for a while, and I like the idea of you just describe like, the range of stuff that you want to test. Like, I want to have strings that and I guess you define some properties of the strings, like Zero length, infinite length, or something, capital letters, whatever. And then it uses those rules to generate a bunch of things to exercise the boundaries of your code. Right. So effectively, you're, you're 
creating a generator that you yield over every single test run to to generate values for you and you give it a set of constraints in which you want those values to be generated with right so it sounds cool and i bet it would catch bugs but like how many bugs would it catch (laughs) how many bugs would a bug catcher catch if a bug catcher could catch bugs right five (laughs) i don't know (laughs) I, I think it's seven. Actually, is a seven? definitive answer. If only yeah. we could. If only we could generate some properties for this answer, and then we could know the <laughs> bounds. For <laughs> no, I, I, I think I could see it in certain places in the code base. Like, given a finite number of options, and you, you don't really have the, the means to to test all of those, and you really need this this one area to be very heavily tested. I could see it being really useful um, in certain cases. I think there's probably, you know. Not everything has a, a, a completely like random, well, uh, has like many kind of variants that you would pass to a test as, as a seed. So I think there's some places where it's more useful than others, but mm-hmm. um, I don't know. It reads really well. We'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. Um, the library is called Stream Data. Uh, I would love to hear if anyone's had successes with it. I think also there's a property testing book out now as well, right? I don't know. It's news to me. Yeah, I'll, I'll um, dig that up and put it in the show notes as well. Cool. Cool. Yeah, well, I think we should wrap up given that we've been rambling on for quite some time. Quite and some time. I gave away the game in that I don't know about property testing. So <laughs> I'm just going to go and read up on that. We'll have to have someone on the show who knows what they're talking about. Definitely. Not us. <laughs> no. <laughs> we know some things, just not that many. Uh-huh. Great. So yeah, well, thank you everyone for listening as always. Um if you have any feedback about this episode or any of our other episodes, you can get in touch with us by opening up an issue on our GitHub page, which is github.com forward slash elixir talk forward slash elixir talk. Uh you can find us on Twitter at Elixir Talk, or you can reach out to us via our website, uh, which is elixirtalk.com. Cool. We hope to hear from you. (laughs) Definitely. We always hope to hear from folks. And I thought that ending was really polished. And then, you know, you just just got in there. Well, you sort of left me hanging. You just, like, (laughs) dropped off in open air. And I was like, I don't know, keep elixiring? What? (laughs) I mean, that is how we usually finish. So thank you, everyone, for listening. And uh, keep elixiring. Keep elixiring.